Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Welcome, Father, and thank you. Thanks so much, Father John Mark. We begin again with the prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, um, as Father John Mark said, I hope you slept well. I, I, I was woken this morning by the dawn chorus, by birdsong at about 4.30 in the morning, and I, I was saying, damn you birds. And then I thought, you know, this is an ecological opportunity to assume my position in the great chain of being, so I did. Um, so, we're t- speaking here about th- the life and works of Thomas Aquinas, basically. Um, and I want to start off in, in Medias Res, just right in the middle of his life, at the age of 35. Just imagine this scene. Dominican friar called Thomas. He's sitting down in his study in Paris to write in his own hand the first few chapters of a book of Christian theology that would take into account the object- various objections to Christianity, especially those of Muslims. And he's beginning this new work. And in the, the very second paragraph or chapter, he gives an insight into his own motivation in writing, his own sense of his vocation as a theologian. Normally, if you've read a lot of Thomas, you, you'll realize he's incredibly impersonal in his writing, often frustratingly impersonal. You really want to, to find something more about this man and, and his motivation. But here he gives us a little insight, and it's, it's very rare and precious insight. This is what he says. You have it in text one on your handout. And so in the name of the divine mercy... I have the confidence to embark upon the work of a wise man, even though this may surpass my powers. And I've set myself the task of making known, as far as my limited powers will allow, the truth that the Catholic faith professes, and of setting aside the errors that are opposed to it. To use the words of Hilary, says Hilary of Poitiers, I am aware that I owe this to God as the chief duty of my life, that my every word and sense me speak of him. So hopefully you all have, have this handout. It says from Dumox to Angelic Doctor. If you don't, I think there's some extra copies here in the middle. So the chief duty of my life, that my every word and sense may speak of him. So in this talk, I'm going to try to give you a sense of the, the whole life of Thomas Aquinas and of his dedication to speaking of God, speaking truly and wisely of him. His was a life totally dedicated to truth, so we're approaching the, the topic of our retreat, if you like, through the person of Thomas. Needless to say, it's an impossible task to say anything remotely adequate about the life of work of life and work of St. Thomas Aquinas in an hour or so. 
So I'll just be scratching the surface, and I've given you a few further reading ideas. I'd recommend particularly there um, the two-volume work, if you're really serious about St. Thomas, by Jean-Pierre Torel. I had the privilege of living with, with Father Jean-Pierre, and he's a, a wonderful man and a, and a phenomenal writer on St. Thomas. Um, so I'd really recommend that. But any of those books there would be a good, a good starting point. And also there are all these online resources, uh, all the tons of podcasts of the Thomistic Institute available on SoundCloud. And then there's Aquinas 101, this really excellent series, I'm sure familiar to many of you. And a, web, uh, a YouTube channel that might not be known to you, iAquinas, where you have various different experts speaking in many different languages, but with English subtitles on the vast majority of them, I think. Um, and so there you're tapping into the Thomistic world beyond the English-speaking speak, English world. And it's really an excellent resource. Now, I'm sure you all know better than to think of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, but I imagine a lot of your peers do think in these terms at times. They possibly think of Europe before the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution as an age of authority, an age with little curiosity and little creativity even. Think even of the, the, the motto of um, Calvin's Geneva, post tenebras lux, after the darkness, light. Um, but you know that's not the case. You just have to stand in front of a Gothic cathedral anywhere to realize how unfair and untrue that stereotype is. And the more you dig into the, the 13th century especially, the more you see it as an age of novelty. The Gothic cathedrals themselves are new. A new style of preaching emerges at this time called the Sermo Modernus, the modern sermon, consciously different from the old style way of preaching, the Sermo Antiquus. And of course, the universities are new as well. In the late 12th and early 13th centuries, students and teachers in Paris and Bologna, especially, and also elsewhere, begin clubbing together in associations aimed at protecting their respective rights. So in Paris, the model is that the teachers club together into one of these associations. In Bologna, it's a different model of university. It's the students who form an association. And these associations come to be called universitates. The term universitas was just another name for a guild. So these universities were a guild of teachers or a guild of students working together. And usually with papal support, this institutional setup provided the necessary framework for stable, long-term teaching and research and collaboration. And these stable environments began quickly to attract great numbers of students from across the Christian world, and they quickly became, as you know, very prestigious. They were places where old ideas and old subjects were taught, but, as you know as well, I'm sure they were quickly flooded with new texts and new ideas, or better, if you like, rediscovered texts and ideas especially works of philosophy by Aristotle that have been forgotten in the Latin West, but which had been actively studied by the lively philosophical tradition in the Arabic-speaking world among Muslims and Christians. So with the Christian conquest of parts of Spain then and elsewhere, long-forgotten works of Aristotle were rediscovered and translated from Arabic into, into Latin. And at the same time, or shortly afterwards, you have people from Western Europe learning Greek again, and they begin translating Aristotle directly from Greek into Latin. We'll see that Thomas Aquinas was in fact an early adopter of these cutting-edge translations and was possibly even collaborating with one of his Dominican brothers, William of Merbecke, in this work of translation. So the new world of universities suddenly encounters a whole load of new ideas in Aristotle and in newly discovered Jewish and Muslim philosophers, people like Averroes, Avicenna, and Moses Maimonides. You have new ideas in metaphysics, for example. You have new ideas about the soul 
and its relationship to the body, as we saw yesterday. You have new ideas about ethics with a new appreciation of virtue as a moral category. You have new ideas about the natural world, about physics, about zoology, and so on. But even more important, I think, than new ideas is a new method, Aristotle's method, a method which involves in every science, from, from botany to metaphysics, rigorous investigation and systematic organization. Aristotle seeks always to show how every element of a particular science fits with all the other parts and how the more fundamental ideas give rise to other ideas and so on. So this model of how to think, how to think responsibly and clearly is undoubtedly, I think, Aristotle's most important contribution to this new world of universities. And it's not just because it's new and trendy that it's adopted. It's seen as a helpful method to uncover truth, the truth about beings in the world and their relations with one another. You see this very clearly in the work of St. Thomas's teacher, beloved to many of you, Albert the Great. In his work on animals, for example, sometimes he'll simply be paraphrasing what Aristotle says in a particular section about hedgehogs or cats or whatever it might be. But then he'll, he'll cut loose and he'll apply the same method to animals and to regions unknown to Aristotle. And he's always seeking after truth. So he's just applying Aristotle's method to situations that Aristotle couldn't have known about. Some books, he will say, say this about the mole. I've heard this about the mole, but I applied Aristotle's method and here's the truth of the matter. Here's what the mole is, is really like. Albert, it seems, actually dissected moles, in fact. Um, he's, he's one of the early adopters of that method of investigating nature. Apart from making his pet snake uh, drunk, as we were discussing last night, that's another of his experiments on animals. So this new scientific method is hugely impactful, and it causes plenty of controversy as well. But there's another impactful and controversial phenomenon that emerges around the same time the new orders of friars, especially Franciscans and Dominicans. These friars were not monks. They didn't live in the countryside. They didn't have big farms. They lived in towns and cities. They lived by begging, and their focus was on sharing the gospel with all kinds of people. I think it's important to, to underline that, that the friars primarily, we, they were not primarily uh, a kind of an intellectual movement. That was definitely part of it. But they were primarily a movement of popular preaching. But study was very much integrated into that movement. Each Dominican priory, for example, was meant to have a lector who would teach the other members of the priory. So in the ideal um, uh, situation, every day the friars would gather for lectures on the Bible and theological and pastoral questions. So Dominican priories were places of prayer, but also communities of study. And the idea was that the preaching of the friars would be kept lively and interesting if they were continuously studying. As one early Dominican put it, first the bow is, is bent in study, then the arrow is released in preaching. And if you're interested in reading up more on this, I haven't put it on your handout, but there's an excellent work which has that title. I think it's just called First the Bow is Bent in Study by Michelle Mulcahy at the University of Toronto about that early educational culture among Dominican friars. Really excellent work. So what's the relationship then between the friars and the universities? So it's important to dispel from our minds the idea that all the friars are going to university. It's a really tiny minority of friars who end up at university. They're all being educated in their local priories, and then a smaller number will go to a centralized studio where they will do further studies, and then a smaller number again will actually go and get involved in the world of universities. But those university-educated men will feed back into the system. So the whole world of friars 
is influenced by university culture, but they're not all attending, attending universities. The Franciscans, they, they get involved in university life a little bit reluctantly after some internal controversy on that question, but for the Dominicans, it's part of the original plan. Dominic himself sent friars to Paris and Bologna, the two major university towns, and the, the English Dominicans, I think, say that he's also sent people to Oxford. Is that, that's, that's a, yeah. So he sent, he sent friars to Oxford as well in 1221, the year, the year that he died. Um, in Bologna, we know that he was active in student ministry as well. I mean, this is really fascinating when you read um, the, it, it might be in the Vitae Fratrum or the, the, the canonization documents on St. Dominic, I can't remember, but there's stories about him actively visiting student residences in Bologna to spend time just conversing with the students. In Paris, we know the friars weren't allowed initially uh, to preach publicly, um, so Dominic and his brothers would invite students from the university to their priory for prayer and, and conversation. His successor as master of the order, Jordan of Saxony, he would preach Lenten missions every year, one year in Paris, the next at Bologna. So focusing again on these uh, early universities. And many, many university men, students and masters, joined the order at this time. Not only theologians, but lawyers, medics, and masters of arts, that is, masters of, of you know, men who taught logic and astronomy and geometry and so on. And actually, Jordan of Saxony tells us that, that it was mostly people from the arts faculty who were joining the order, and, and not, there weren't so many theologians joining. Um, and he explains this in terms of um, somebody who, who's used to drinking lots of water, and then a little sip of wine, they hear the gospel being preached by a friar, they're drunk instantly, and they're like, put the habit on me. Whereas theologians are kind of immersed in all of this, and they, they're a bit blasé, and they take it for granted. Uh, he compares it also to a sacristan who spends a lot of time in the church and ceases to appreciate the, the, the importance of the church, and he stops bowing before the altar. So that's the risk, of, the risk of studying theology, that you're too immersed in it, you take it for granted. Whereas if you come in from another subject, like so many of you are doing here, suddenly it's, it's, it's so much more fascinating and so on. Um, so the Dominicans from the beginning were naturally at home in this new world of universities. They weren't always welcome there, not by a long shot. And the secular clergy often opposed their presence in the universities. But eventually they came to occupy chairs of theology at the University of Paris. So, very appropriately, I think, Dominicans had two chairs and Franciscans had one chair. But as I said, this was not without controversy, their presence in the universities. And when Thomas, for example, preached his inaugural lecture, which I've given you there on a separate handout, there were snipers protecting him. The royal archers sent by Louis IX in case of a riot. So this is quite a controversial period in terms of friars being active in the universities. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The major point is that there was a lot that was new that was happening in the 13th century in the life of the church and in the intellectual life of Europe. So now let's, let's turn to St. Thomas. He was born in Roccasecca, where he's marked by this horrific statue, um, in 1225. And he died in the Cistercian Abbey of Fossanova in, in 1274. So think about what happened just four years before his birth in 1225. So we heard that the, the friars get sent to Oxford, okay, that's important, but also St. Dominic dies in, in 1221, um, just a few hundred miles north of Roccasecca where, where he was born. St. Dominic dies in, in Bologna. And just about 50 miles south of where uh, Thomas is born, in Naples, a new university was founded a year before his birth by the Emperor Frederick II. So the world of young Thomas was in close contact 
with much of what was new and vital in Europe at the time. His family was, was a family of the minor nobility, and his older brothers were active in, in military campaigning. One of them, Rinaldo, had fought for the emperor against the pope, but then changed sides to fight for the pope, and the emperor had him executed for this. And it's a curious uh, little detail. After Thomas's death, decades later, one of his sisters, Maratha, had a dream, and her concern is to ask Thomas how their brother is doing, the brother who had been executed. Um, and Thomas says he's grand, you know, he's, he's in heaven, he's all right. But the fact that she was concerned about this decades later, it shows what a trauma this must have been and what an anxiety it must have been um, for the family. And I say this just to underline the fact that Thomas's life was a real human life with real suffering, real joy, and so on. His writing can be so serene and impersonal that we imagine him as some kind of Vulcan or some kind of, of lifeless oracle. But he was, in fact, a real human being who liked eating herrings and who cried at mass. In any case, back to, to young Thomas. Um, he was the youngest son. His parents, Theodora and Landolfo, had four boys and five girls. And as the youngest son, by custom, he was destined for the church. Not destined for the smelly friars who had only been around a wet week, but for this place, the ancient abbey of Monte Cassino, founded by St. Benedict himself. He was given to the monastery to be a monk at the age of about five or six. That's pretty incredible to us now. He was an oblate, that's called. But it was, it was a fairly standard practice at the time. Oblates weren't full monks, and they weren't even necessarily committed to the monastery for life. It was possible that they, they might leave at a certain point. But they had a regular liturgical life and would have had an excellent education and a really peaceful, mature environment. Some of the greatest geniuses of the Middle Ages were brought up as oblates in, in monastic communities. So, for example, Bede, the great pioneering historian, the father of English history, Knocker the Stammerer, uh, this pioneering musician who was one of the first to develop the uh, sequences. He, was, he actually had an Irish teacher in the Abbey of Sangal, Muin Gall was his name, and Knocker tells us the story of him bringing some of his sequences uh, to Muin Gall, and Muin Gall says, yeah, change this, change that, but apart from that, it's pretty cool. And then he ended up composing dozens of these things, which were hugely important uh, in the early history of chant throughout Europe. Um, but he was, a, he was an oblate. Uh, Gerbert of Aurillac, the early adopter of Islamic science and mathematics, and later Pope Sylvester. Herman the Lame, a fascinating figure who was physically disabled, and this is one of the reasons it seems that he was given to the monastery, but the monks discovered that he had a fine intellect, and he became a great teacher of mathematics and astronomy and music, and possibly a composer of the Salve Regina. You can see him here with the Salve Regina. He's one of the people who's credited uh, with that. And of course, then Hildegard of Bingen, who's visionary and, and musical composer and, and letter writer and, and so much else. And Thomas Aquinas, but you can see the company he's in here as a monastic oblate. And it might seem like a very sterile environment to send a child into, but we're told a really kind of comforting detail by the biographers. When he went to the monastery, he was accompanied by his nurse, by his nanny. So as a child there, he would have had that maternal comfort. There would have been plenty of hugs and affection for him, I think. It wasn't an utterly austere life. But here he was in, in Monte Cassino from the age of about five to the age of about 15 or so, singing in the office, doing manual labor, and, and learning the basics of, of the liberal arts. And he's been soaked in the scriptures as well, not so much in the classroom as in the church. If you think about this, every day he's singing the Psalms, 
from the age of five, he's there being, being soaked in the Psalms and listening to readings from throughout scripture. Young Thomas, and this is again important to emphasize, he was shaped by the liturgy, by worship, as much as he was shaped by his teachers. So there's a really interesting example here, a manuscript from the British Library. Have any of you seen this, this roll? It's a big, long, long, long roll. Have any of you seen it before? It's a, there's a curious feature. The writing here, and then the, the musical notation, these, this early musical notation, these neumes, they're upside down with respect to the images. There's this long series of images, and then this text uh, interspersed, but it's upside down with respect to the images. Why might that be? Yes? Bingo. Well spotted. So it actually, the, the role itself, it's quite a meta kind of a thing. The role itself shows us the role being used in the liturgy and how it would have been used. So here's the deacon. It's the exaltate. That's the text. The deacon is proclaiming the exaltate. You have the pastel candle here being incensed. And then you have all these little munchkins here reading or looking at the images that match the text that is being sung. Um, so this role is from, from Monte Cassino. So I think we can imagine Thomas as a little munchkin there. And, and this is what, what he's experiencing. Think of him aged seven or eight in a darkened church, Paschal candle lit there, incense filling the air, a huge crowd gathered in the church, totally silent, and just the voice of the deacon proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. And he can see in the candlelight this story unfolding before him in, in these exact pictures. So throughout his childhood, he's encountering God in the liturgy, he's worshipping God, and he's doing so at the heart of a community dedicated to worship. So God is for him, first of all, an object of worship and not an object of investigation. But he's also asking lots of questions about God. He's a five-year-old, and like every good five-year-old, he is full of questions. So you can see text two in your handout from one of the early biographies of, of Thomas. Having been entrusted to a certain master, Thomas began, like another Josiah, little five-year-old Josiah, to inquire of the Lord his God, anxiously and often asking his teacher, what is God? Quid est Deus? It's perhaps not unusual that a five-year-old is repeating fundamental and very, very difficult questions. What's unusual about St. Thomas is that he never stopped doing just that. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Everything changes for Thomas, the monastic oblate, in, in 1239. Military tensions between the Pope and the Emperor meant that the monastery was no longer a safe place, and the abbot recommended to Thomas' par Thomas's parents that he be sent to the University of Naples, this new university set up by the Emperor. This didn't necessarily mean leaving the monastic life, and he almost certainly stayed in those years at the little community of Monte Cassino monks in Naples. Now, this university was one of the places that was most active in engaging with new texts coming from the Islamic world. So there's a Scottish connection here. Um, a man by the name of Michael Scott or Michael Scotus. Um, so at this period, Scotus, by this time, Scotus means somebody from Scotland, what is now Scotland. Before this period, Scotus meant somebody who was from, from Ireland. So you have John Scotus Arugina is John the Irishman from Ireland. Uh, just really emphasizing that point where he's from. Whereas Michael Scotus here at this point is Michael from, from what is now, now Scotland, just like Dunn Scotus and so on. So Michael Scotus is a, a real pioneer in, in um, language acquisition, and he's translating from Arabic into, um, into Latin. Um, so he's translating many, many important texts 
um, uh, that had been translated into Arabic, text from Aristotle, and, and so on. Um, there's also, uh, an, and, and he's employed by Frederick II, so he's at the court of Frederick II, producing all these new translations that are then soaked up in the University of Naples. And there's also an Irish connection, because one of, um, one of Thomas's teachers at the University of Naples was an Irishman, Master Peter of Ireland, who taught Thomas the, the naturalia, the, the natural sciences, let's say. And interestingly, Peter of Ireland features a little later, in the year 1250, in a really fascinating study group, a Christian Jewish study group, um, where they were studying, among other things, the works of Moses Maimonides. So you have Christians and Jews together studying the works of Moses Maimonides. And it's a Jewish writer, uh, Moses ben Solomon, um, who actually recounts some of what Peter of Ireland was asking and was suggesting in this study group of Moses Maimonides. So this is very relevant for Thomas. You just get a sense of some of the characters who are shaping him at this, at this young age. But during his five years at Naples, from about the ages of 15 to 20, um, this also happened. Thomas got to know the Dominican friars. He heard their preaching. He saw how they lived. He learned that they honored God and served the church by studying the truth and communicating the truth. And he had found his path. He had found his calling. And so he took the Dominican habit in 1244 at about the age of 20. His family, I'm sure you know, furious. Who on earth were these ragtag bunch of nerdy beggars? What about their hopes that Thomas would be abbot of Monte Cassino and would be a rich landowner? His mother, Theodora, a Mudiar Fortis, she goes straight to Naples to stop him, but he's already gone to Bologna. And interestingly, I only learned this recently, it had happened a few years previously that the son of an aristocratic family had joined the Dominicans and the, the priory ended up being, being burnt um, by the family. They were furious that their son had joined this disreputable bunch of, of preaching beggars. And so the Dominicans were, they were cute this time. They, they knew what to do. So Thomas took the habit and they sent him straight away to Bologna to safety. But Theodore was a cute woman as well. She knew exactly what to do. So she got her military sons to intercept Thomas on his way to Bologna. So poor Thomas, a Dominican novice, is kidnapped by his own brothers and is kept imprisoned in his family home from the age of 20 to 21. It's a totally normal, normal situation. Here's little Thomas being taken away from his black and white buddies by, uh, by his family. Um, so they try everything to dissuade him from remaining as, as a friar. Famously, you know the story, they send in a prostitute to tempt him, but he resists temptation and, and keeps her back with, with a red-hot poker. And it's at that stage in the, in the biographies that, that Thomas's kind of angelic nature is emphasized, his angelic, his angelic chastity. Uh, you might be familiar with the, the confraternity of the, the angelic warfare. Um, that's, that's associated with, with this whole aspect of St. Thomas and, and his chastity. And he didn't actually hurt her with the red-hot poker. I had to clarify this recently. He just held it out and she said, I'm out of here, you know. So, uh, One thing I love about this time of imprisonment, though, this year, is what Thomas does with his time. So, again, we all had a lockdown experience. We all made banana bread. We all did all kinds of different things. Um, what Thomas did, he studied. He studied really intensely. One of his biographers writes, it's a beautiful phrase, while he was hemmed up in the body, he was released in mind. He read the Bible cover to cover. So Bible in a Year podcast, I'm sure many of you are doing it. He was doing that in this time without the help of Father Mike Schmitz. And he studied the sentences of Peter Lombard, which is a standard 
theological textbook of the time. And we're told he read works on logic by Aristotle. But I find this fascinating. He's not studying on his own. He doesn't just lock himself in his room and study on his own. He begins to share what he's learned with one of his sisters. He sets up a little Bible study with her. And I think that's a really important point. Thomas would go on to have many students in Paris, Rome, Orvieto, and so on. And as far as I know, all of them were men. But his first student was this young lame woman whose mind he clearly respected enough to invite into his own study. In any case, Thomas's family eventually recognized that he's not returning, and so he's released back to the Dominican order. And from that point on, for about 30 years, he lives the life of a Dominican friar. And I think it's really important to underline that too. Sometimes Thomas can be reduced to his works or to his ideas, and we forget the life that lay behind the works, a life lived in community, a life of prayer, a life lived under obedience, and the life that involved the ultimate penance, committee work, especially committee work with Dominicans. There is nothing more painful. You'll know this, fathers. There's nothing more painful than being on a committee with Dominicans. Everyone has an opinion. So when the Dominican order, for example, was trying to, to draw up a proper curriculum for its internal studies, it called on Thomas along with four other friars. One of them was Albert the Great. When I read about this committee, it was the first time I actually thought, I wouldn't mind actually going along to those committee meetings. That would be pretty cool. Thomas and Albert drawing up a theological curriculum with their colleagues. And they did. They, they, they drew up a, a, a curriculum and they approved. There was a risk at the time within the order of some people who were very opposed to philosophy. They only wanted the study of scripture. Uh, very opposed to philosophy, very opposed to these new ideas and new methods. And this committee really kind of won the day um, for, for these new methods and new ideas uh, in Christian theology within the Dominican order. And on two other occasions, Thomas's fellow Dominicans asked him to, to set up houses and programs of study within the order, first in Rome and then in Naples. Um, and although, again, just a, an aspect of Thomas's character, although he could at times be, be withdrawn, he was a fraternal character as well. Just one detail that shows that we have a little banner of St. Agnes in the room here, uh, just in the room next to us. On the feast of St. Agnes in Thanksgiving, for the healing, the miraculous healing through the intercession of St. Agnes of one of his secretaries, Reginald, Thomas used to put on a special dinner every year for his students. So you get a, a sense of that fraternity and that sort of festivity as well in his character. In any case, the, the, the point is that everything Thomas did from this point on, all his study and teaching and writing, he did as a Dominican friar under obedience to Dominican friars, collaborating with Dominican friars, supported by Dominican friars for the most part, and with many Dominican friars among his students and intended readers. But if he was a man of the Dominican order, he was also a man of universities, and that brought him into contact with the world beyond the order. So right from the start, as I mentioned, St. Dominic wanted his friars closely associated with universities. Other churchmen were very suspicious of universities, like St. Bernard of Clairvaux. But Dominic and the Dominicans saw their huge value. So of the, the 30 years remaining in Thomas's life, He's, for the most part, he's operating in, in universities. So, for example, he spent seven years as a student at universities, first in Paris and then in Cologne. So what's he doing as a student? As a student, apart from being taught by, um, uh, apart from uh, all the, the various religious observances he's carrying out, he is taught by bachelors and masters who taught from the two main theological textbooks. So the word bachelor there, a knight would have his bachelor. It was a squire. And a, a, an apprentice. So the bachelor was an apprentice to, to the master. So these bachelors were like junior teachers or teaching assistants, and then the masters were the, 
the, the senior teachers, the senior lecturers, if you like. So they were taught from, from two main theological textbooks, the Bible and the sentences of Peter Lombard. And a typical day for Thomas and his fellow students at the University of Paris would have included a two-hour lecture on the Bible, a two-hour lecture on the sentences, and then in the afternoon, repetitions of what had been learnt with a debate or a disputatio once a week. The bachelors who were teaching Thomas, they would have commented on the biblical books in a speedier and more superficial way, uh, without dwelling on difficult problems or, or mystical senses, just establishing the literal meaning of the text. Some of you might have done the, the Great Adventure Bible study, just you can do it in eight weeks, and then you can come, so that's all of scripture in eight weeks. You get a sense just of the big picture, and then you can return and do the same thing over 24 weeks, and you go into a bit more, more depth. So the masters went into, when they taught, the masters would go into much greater depth in their commentary in class, and would usually spend one year on each biblical book. Now we don't know exactly what courses St. Thomas took, but we know one of his professors, you know him well, St. Albert the Great, whom we already mentioned. A few years later, in his late 20s, Thomas was an assistant to Albert the Great. Um, and there was this wonderful discovery made about 15 years ago um, in, I think, the Cathedral Library in Cologne, uh, which shows some of the work that Albert gave Thomas to do. So one of the texts that Albert chooses to comment on when he's in Cologne is um, the divine names of, of Dionysius the Areopagite. And this was a text written in Greek and then translated several different times into Latin. And so Albert and Thomas, they were interested in, in textual accuracy. They didn't know Greek. And so they would compare different translations. Uh, so there, were, there was a translation by John Scotus Erugina, the, the Irishman I mentioned. I think this is, this is his. And what you can see here, the very faint writing in between and down here, is the famous um, uh, illegible writing of, of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's instantly identifiable. So what Thomas is doing here is he's comparing this text with other Latin translations. So, it's so it shows the attention to textual detail. Sometimes we think that in the Middle Ages they weren't interested in textual history, but clearly, clearly they were. So um, Thomas himself was a biblical bachelor also at this time, teaching students in Cologne. He commented on the book of Isaiah, in this cursory, literal way. And we're lucky enough to have some of his notes from that class, and they're an absolute mess, uh, as you can see here. And you can see in the, the lower margin, these notes he's making, these little distinctions about all kinds of different meanings that he could find in the text, but which don't actually make their way into his teaching. He has to just deliver a very straightforward commentary, but his mind is just fizzing with all kinds of ideas. And some later scholars thought that this work and another literal commentary on the scriptures um, must have been inauthentic because they're so, they're so basic. But Thomas was just fulfilling the task he was given, which was to give a basic commentary on Isaiah. It's worth noting at this time as well that Albert, Thomas's teacher, was very interested in Aristotle, especially in his ethics, and he was teaching on this text at a time when other universities considered it off limits. So Thomas is very much there at the cutting edge of the adoption of Aristotle in theology. What was Thomas himself like in this period? We know he was a very quiet and a very straightforward character. His fellow student friars gave him, sorry, I should have shown you this as well. This is um, from a collection of Thomas's own notes and it's prefaced by this comment by Reginald, his secretary, who says, we've, we've preserved this just in case there's ever anyone who can read his handwriting. 
Um, it's just this catty <laughs> remark from, from, from Reginald. Um, and some of his handwriting, some of his manuscripts have been kind of cut up, and you can find them in reliquaries. Thomas's handwriting in reliquaries, and they're as good there as anywhere else because they're really, really hard to read. And I say that as somebody I've worked quite, you know, a little bit on paleography, reading manuscripts and so on. But you get to this, I mean, Thomas's stuff is just, it's a whole, a whole other level. In any case, he's the dumb ox. Uh, his fellow student friars, uh, that's the nickname they have for him. And one of his biographers uh, tells us that, and he adds, they did not know then about the doctrinal mooing, mutitus is the Latin for mooing, that was to come. And they actually thought, his fellow students thought he was a bit slow because he was so quiet. And they offered to help him on one occasion. One of them was, sat him down and said, listen, I'll explain to you what Albert taught today. This is this repetitio uh, in the afternoon. And so Thomas is sitting there, the dumb ox, just listening, listening quietly. And this guy's making a complete hash of what Albert taught. Um, and so Thomas then just gently corrects him and adds a few points and then begins explaining everything with perfect clarity and they're all fairly stunned. Um, when Albert came to realize how talented Thomas was, he said to the other students, we call him the dumb ox. I found it interesting that he says we, not you. So it seems the teachers were joining in on this. We call him the dumb ox, but he will produce such a mooing in his teaching that it will resound throughout the whole world. After Cologne, Thomas is back in Paris, now working as a bachelor of the sentences, so that's the, that's the next stage. And then he produces his, his doctoral thesis, if you like, his commentary on the sentences, as well as writing a few short works. Then he's a proper master, a master of the sacred page. That's what he would have written on his business card if he had one, master of the sacred page, that is the scriptures. And he holds a chair of theology in Paris on two occasions, for three years in his early to mid thirties, and then for four years in his late forties. And in between those two periods of teaching in Paris, he's teaching and writing full-time in Dominican houses in Naples and Rome and Orvieto. Now, what does it mean to be a master at the University of Paris at this time? It means three things, predicare, disputare, and legere, to preach, to dispute or debate, and then to read or lecture or comment. So preaching meant delivering sermons before the university, spiritual refle reflections which all the students had to attend, and Thomas as master would have done that several times in the year. And we have a few of his university sermons which survive, and they're really beautiful. But it's interesting that he, he avoids using stories or unusual images in his preaching. So at the time, it would have been very, very popular for preachers to do this, to intersperse their, their doctrinal points with illustrative stories or unusual images. And he just, he just doesn't really do that. His preaching style is very clear, very straightforward, nothing strange or startling. But his preaching didn't always go smoothly. So in 1259, for example, one of his sermons in Paris was interrupted by an employee of the university, a man responsible for getting the students from the north of France to behave themselves well when they were at university. He didn't behave himself particularly well. He got up in the middle of the sermon and he started protesting against the presence of mendicant friars at the university. He had flyers to hand out. He had these copies of pamphlets written by a diehard opponent of the friars and he went around distributing these, uh, these flyers. So just a fascinating insight into some of the controversies at the time we imagine things to be so peaceful and so smooth and so perfectly Catholic and everybody agreed and everybody got on. It was far from the case. So that's preaching. Then disputare referred to the practice of disputatio, formal debate as a, as a way to sharpen your teeth in your subject. Think of, if any of you study law, think of the moot court, think of teaching practice if you're in education, think of lab practicals and, and so on. So in a theology disputatio, there'd be a question to be discussed 
say, do the sacraments of the new law cause grace in the soul? That's a disputatio that Thomas really oversaw in Paris. He records it. And there'd be two teams of students, those who would take one side and they would present arguments against. And there were 19 in, the, in, in Thomas's record, it's in the, the disputed questions on truth. You have these 19 objections to the idea that the sacraments cause grace in the soul. So it's not just one or two, 19 objections. And then the other team would respond to each of these objections. And then the master presiding over all of this would give his decision, his determinatio magistralis, where he would sum up the truth of the matter while taking into account the good elements in all the objections. And often the proceedings of these disputed questions would be edited and published as many of Thomas's were. Now, when you read these disputed questions, there's a word you'll come across again and again and again. I distinguish or redistinguish, or let us distinguish, distinguo. I looked up how many times forms of that verb occur in Thomas's corpus, 6,000 times he says something like that. So for, say for example, I mean a silly example, but the question is, do dogs bark? And the objector says, no, dogs don't bark. Bark is what grows on the outside of trees. And then you say, I distinguish. We distinguish between two senses of the word bark. Well, that's a silly example, but you get the idea. And it's a really important aspect of Thomas's thought and his search for truth. It's not original to him, this practice of debating. It's just part of the air he breathes, but he is a true master of the art of distinction. And you can see how important this skill is for one who is seeking after truth. Orators and demagogues, they're great at selling lies to people by confusing them, by failing to distinguish or refusing or neglecting to distinguish what ought to be distinguished. But the true seeker after truth the lover of wisdom will learn to distinguish, to be nuanced, and so on. Interestingly, there was another kind of disputed question, quadlibital question. So we'll have that little session, the quadlibit, at the end of this retreat, when masters had to come before the students, and the students could ask them whatever they wanted. You can imagine how challenging that must have been for the masters, and we know that they often skipped these events. They developed strategic sore throats and so on. But scholars have actually figured out that Thomas really attended his fair share of these sessions. He was very regular in his attendance at these sessions. And again, his replies were edited and published. And recently, there's a new English translation of them available. And it's a fascinating text. Um, there's all kinds of unexpected questions that he's expected to, that he, that he, that he's, that he has to, to answer. So there's a, a cheeky one, for example. Somebody asks, um, say somebody takes a vow to go on crusade, but their wife is a woman of loose character and you don't trust her, he doesn't trust her to, to remain faithful, is he obliged to go on crusades? That's one of the things that Thomas has to try to answer there. Um, interestingly, he also, uh, one of the questions he's asked is, should we always choose the best man to be bishop in a diocese? And what does he do? He distinguishes. He says, best in an absolute sense means the, the most charitable man. That's the, the most important perfection of the soul. Um, but there are different kinds of excellence needed in a bishop and sometimes it's best to choose a man who is less charitable, but more skillful in this or that area. So you might have a really charitable man who just has no clue about accounts or no clue how to preach or whatever it might be. And so you've got to distinguish. Um, so that you get a little insight there. And they're really entertaining and all quite short. So it'd be a good way into, into the world of Thomas. So there's preaching and disputing. And then finally, there's, there's reading or lecturing. And it's so important to emphasize here that what Thomas is reading and commenting on in his lectures is scripture. He's a master of the sacred page. 
from the beginning to the end of his theological career, he's commenting on scripture. He does write commentaries on some of Aristotle's works near the end of his life, but as far as I know, he doesn't teach them. They're not texts that he, that he taught. It seems he commented on Aristotle to prepare himself in his, in his writing uh, of the Summa Theologiae, in some cases anyway. So he writes, his teaching text is the Bible, one book at a time, commenting in great depth and subtlety. So of these in-depth commentaries, we have the following. We have a commentary on the book of Job, commentaries on Matthew and, and John, commentaries on a commentary on the Psalms, and on all of Paul's letters. That's a really extraordinary uh, text. That's, that's my favorite among them, his commentary on, on Paul's letters. And he also composed a collection of commentaries from the fathers. You might have heard of the Catena Aurea. Uh, this is a text that he was commissioned to compose where he would get the best of, the greatest hits of the fathers, commenting on every verse of the Gospel of Matthew and so on. So he'd have maybe 10 quotations from, from the fathers uh, for, each, for each verse uh, in the Gospels. And again, he works on these to edit them and publish them. And it's worth recognizing Thomas published an awful lot. Uh, I think there's one estimate that he published about 10 million words in his lifetime. So he's certainly the most prolific author in terms of extant works, as far as I know. Vincent of Beauvais and other Dominican might compete with him, but I don't know if people have gone through and counted all of his, uh, his words. But that's roughly 2,000 words every working day, somebody has estimated, that he published, not just that he wrote. I mean, you could all write, you know, WhatsApps adding up to 2,000 words every single day. But these are words that are worth reading. So apart from sermons and commentaries and disputed question, questions, he also produces, as I mentioned, commentaries on the works of Aristotle, polemical works defending the mendicants. This is where he gets spicy. When he's, really, when he's defending the mendicants, he, he, really, um, he really gets interesting. Um, and you see his personality emerge. And also short works written at the request of various people, especially Dominican friars. So he's getting requests from people to answer this or that question or these series of questions. So one of them, uh, in one of them, Thomas answers questions from a friar in Besançon who had written to him asking questions on the exact shape of the star uh, in Bethlehem at the Nativity and other incredibly unimportant questions. And Thomas answers them. Um, but then he warns against getting into theological questions that are not truly important. There's a little bit of fraternal correction here. And he says, listen, you need to weigh up what's important in theology. Um, another reply to questions is sent to Antioch, to a man, probably a Dominican friar, at work there among Muslims. And Thomas is helping him to explain Christian beliefs to Muslims who had been ridiculing him. So a very practical situation. He's helping out a missionary and helping him to explain and defend the Christian faith. And very often in these responses, Thomas, it's, it's like the way we all reply to emails. I'm so sorry for the delay in replying to your email. Um, Thomas does exactly the same. He starts off often by apologizing, by explaining how busy he's been. In one of them, he says, you know, I just had no, we had so many extra prayers in Lent. I just didn't have time to, to write back to you and so on. So he was, a, yeah, he was a busy guy, but he does write. I find it fascinating that he's not just doing his own thing. He's responding charitably to the, to the real practical needs of many people around him. Now, what work of Thomas have I not mentioned much yet that you're all familiar with? The Summa Theologiae, exactly. The one I'm sure you all know and love. Hopefully, against the background of what I've said so far, you'll appreciate it now a bit better and understand its nature. So firstly, I mentioned that Thomas was given carte blanche to design a Dominican curriculum on two occasions. One of them was in Rome. And it's there that he began the Summa Theologiae as a textbook, it seems, for Dominican students, not 
for very advanced students, it's important to, to note, but for ordinary Dominican friars, beginners in, in sacred doctrine. And then think about the structure of the Summa Theologiae. It's divided carefully into three parts, God and creation, the moral life, and Christ and the sacraments, and the last things, if you'd ever finished it. Spoiler alert, he didn't finish it. And then internally, it's, it's subdivided, each part is subdivided intricately, so that each little paragraph nests within a larger article and a larger question and a larger treatise and a larger part and then in the whole and it's often been compared to a gothic cathedral for this attention to intricate structure and you can see the influence of aristotle here as well and his model of science as a rigorous and coherent and well-structured body of thought and you can also see thomas's gift as a teacher so sometimes when people come across the summer the structure of it can seem intimidating the very fact that he's saying at each point, now what I'm doing is this, we'll divide it into three and we'll look at these two first and then among these two we look at these four and so on. That can seem intimidating. But the whole point of it is, is exactly the opposite. It was intended to help students place each element in a larger whole and to understand this or that point in its broader context. And you can see in the prologue uh, that he writes for the summer, he explains this is why he's composing the text. There are other textbooks around and there are confused jumble you just have one point after another and the structure isn't clear at all and so he's doing something different for the benefit of his students the summa is deeply biblical as well it's dripping in quotes from scripture and they're often quotes uh, from memory he'll say you know it says in some place so and so and you can you can actually see for sure that he's quoting from memory at times because a particular line in the psalms it might be slightly modified when it's sung in the liturgy as an antiphon or something like that. You might have a slightly different phrasing of it. And sometimes that's the version that he will quote in the summer. That happens once or twice. And you can see that he's absorbing these texts in the liturgy as well as studying them in front of them. So it's not just that he's, he's on Bible Gateway and he's like typing in all these references and copying and pasting. You know, there's a more kind of a more personal integration of all of these texts. It's not only uh, biblical though in its sources, Thomas regularly, as you know, makes use in the Summa Theologiae of the ideas of pagan, Jewish, and Muslim thinkers, especially Aristotle, but of course, Avicenna, and Maimonides, and, and others. Thomas affirms at one point that every truth by whomsoever spoken is from the Holy Spirit. Now, that quotation needs to be understood properly. He's not saying that Aristotle and others are inspired by the Holy Spirit or are necessarily saints as such but he's recognizing that reason is a divine gift that it can access truth he has confidence in reason and that we should pay attention to all who use this gift well whoever they might be and think then of the structure of each article in the summer what does this make you think of this is i mean if you've ever read an article in the summer this is this is what you get what does it make you think of Debates, exactly, a disputatio. So what you have in each article of the summa, you have a kind of a boiled down version of a disputed question. And some of the articles that Thomas writes in the Summa Theologiae, they are boiled down versions of disputed questions in the De Veritate or wherever it might be. So they're based on real debates that took place. Others are not. He's kind of imagining a debate that might take place. And you can see they're very much boiled down. You rarely have more than, than three. I was actually rereading the, the articles that Thomas writes on, on, on the relationship between soul and body. And there you sometimes have six or seven, and you can tell, okay, this is, this is really crunchy stuff for Thomas. But often a, a more standard, uh, you, have, you have three objections, 
and the reply to the objection. So if you're ever reading comments and you want to get through it quickly, you can go straight to, to this point. That's a kind of a lazy way, but a very helpful way to get through a good chunk of, of Thomas's summa. Um, but then you get so much great material in the objections and, and the replies as well. So the summa wasn't you know, the direct result of a, a single series of disputations, but it echoes all these past disputations and distills their best insights. So you can see in this work that Thomas clearly values this structure as a way of thinking, as a way of approaching truth by carefully and patiently setting aside errors. So he doesn't just give his Dominican students the right answers as he sees them. He gets them thinking about the question from various different perspectives. And these objections, a fascinating thing for Thomas, these objections are almost never obviously wrong. They're plausible. When you read them, you're kind of going, yep, yep, that makes sense to me, that makes sense to me, that makes sense. And Thomas says, but clearly this is not the case. And you're thinking, why not? So in a sense, he steel mans the objectors. He doesn't straw man them. He's not making the objectors to the truth obviously uh, false. He, he steel mans them. So you can see how this summa fits into the rest of his life and work. And it really is the crowning glory of his life and work. It changed my life when, when I started reading it as a teenager, and some of you might have had similar experiences, but it was, of course, never finished. When he was halfway through the third part on the Feast of St. Nicholas, December 6th, 1273, Thomas experienced something as he celebrated Mass, and we're told by his biographer, after that Mass, he never wrote further or even dictated anything, and he even got rid of his writing materials. So imagine that this incredibly prolific producer of words sets aside his writing materials, never dictates anything, never writes anything anymore. And his secretary, Reginald, asks him why. And Thomas said, I cannot do anymore. And then Reginald asks him again a little bit later. And Thomas said, I cannot do anymore. Everything I have written seems to me a straw in comparison with what I have seen. So he had written 10 million words. He had walked about 9,000 miles in his journeys to teach here and there. He had given his whole life to teaching and explaining the truth that God had revealed. Throughout his life, he knew that his words were inadequate to the task of, uh, of speaking of God. It was a task, he said, that, that really surpassed his powers. But he spoke and wrote anyway tirelessly. And now he had some taste of the reality of God, which made him ready for the journey home and rest in the truth. And a few months later, he was on his deathbed at the age of 50, in the Cistercian Monastery of Fossanova. After receiving communion, he said out loud, I receive you, my soul's redemption. I receive you, viaticum of my pilgrimage. For love of you have I studied, watched, and labored. I have preached you, I have taught you. He was anointed the next day, and he died three days later on Wednesday, the 7th of March. So what use is this man to us today in his thought? Very briefly. He mentions in the Summa Contra Gentiles that he intended to make known the truth that the Catholic faith professes, and to set aside the errors opposed to it. For every generation of Catholics since then, his work has served that purpose magnificently, especially in times of controversy. Down to our own time, that's the case too. I, I really don't know if I'd be Catholic today if I hadn't, in all my teenage doubting, found my way to the summer. But he does more than just help us understand and defend our Catholic faith. He also shows us that faith is not opposed to questioning. This is so important. Here's a man who is passionately committed to the truth of the Catholic faith, but who doesn't stop asking questions about it. There's about 3,000 questions that he addresses in the Summa Theologiae alone. He kept that questioning spirit that he had as a five-year-old, and it was not an impertinent questioning, but a holy, humble questioning, confident in the truth. 
Ever since the Enlightenment, Christian faith has been associated with unquestioning, with being unquestioning and incurious. And sometimes we let that lie under our own skin. And Thomas Aquinas, I think, is the best antidote to that lie. He shows us that faith leads to good questioning, questioning which won't end until we come face to face with God. And finally, I think his habit of carefully distinguishing takes on special importance in our time. We're in the era of the echo chamber. We're encouraged by the very medium of our communication to affirm views like our own, to deny the views of our opponents, and to go on affirming and denying until we're incapable of argument and inept at seeking truth. Think of St. Thomas, not simply affirming or denying, but distinguishing, not strawmanning his opponents, but steelmanning them. Spending time reading St. Thomas, it means learning from him to distinguish at every step. And it can be really frustrating to read such an even-handed, careful thinker. Sometimes when I read him, I just want him to blast his opponents, just to destroy them, just to drop the mic, you know. But he always, always he distinguishes. In this they're correct, in that they are. And in this respect, as well as modeling for us how to study and defend the Catholic faith, as well as modeling for us how to remain thoughtful and curious within the community of faith, he also shows us how to think and communicate with open-minded curiosity and even-handed serenity, not engaging in lazy polemics or throwing around slogans and sound bites, but reflecting, distinguishing, and genuinely seeking truth. This deep thinking might seem ineffective, but it's where lasting change comes from. All the polemicists and sloganeers of Thomas's time are long forgotten. Their words are gone the way of fish, flesh, and fowl. But nearly 800 years after his birth, Thomas's careful words are still being carefully read, and his works remain monuments of unaging intellect, rich in truth, and models for truth seekers today. So we've time for uh, a few questions or comments from yourselves, your own experience of reading Thomas, and we have, I've, as I said, I've given you the text of Regan's Monte, so you can have a dig into that. It's really great spiritual reading, to think about teaching and, and studying. It's really, really helpful. So over to you guys, any questions or comments? I've spoken for far too long. Okay. So over to you. Yes, Stephen. It is Stephen, is it? Yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember. I can remember the question, but I can't remember the answer. That's terrible. Um, so I'll have to. I'll have to look. I'll have to look that up. I think I have. I have the text somewhere. So I'll have to look it up and see what he says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were these sermons that were preached during Mass, or were these primarily sort of big outdoor public sermons that were given in Paris, or were yeah. lectures in Yeah, so, well, we're blessed to have uh, a real expert in, in preaching and St. Thomas and so on, uh, in Professor Eitel over here. Um, but definitely, um, uh, Dominicans and Franciscans, they had the privilege to, to preach the sermons they were obliged to preach in their own houses. So it seems that Thomas probably preached these sermons in Saint-Jacques. Um, and whether they were in the context of mass, I, I know that you had, you had morning sermons and then the evening sermons, I think, were not in the context of mass, obviously, that you had these collaciones. But the morning sermons, would they have been preached at mass, do we know? So. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but then you also had plenty of preaching that was, was not in the context of mass. Um, and it's worth noting as well that Thomas, there are Thomas's academic sermons, his university sermons, um, but then also there are popular sermons that he preaches on the Hail Mary, on the Creed, and so on. 
And those would have been preached in the vernacular. So he, he would have preached those in the Neapolitan dialect. They're preserved in Latin, but in Naples he would have preached in the vernacular as well. Um, but it, it is a good question, and, and it's not always clear from the text. He's not always saying, you know, so we're all here at Mass, you know. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's something we could certainly dig into. There's a, a book by um, Randall Smith, which might be helpful on this, um, which is called Reading the Sermons of St. Thomas Aquinas or something like that. So that'd be worth looking at, for sure. And Professor Idle's book that's coming out soon. 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 And it's called... Thomas Aquinas in the Making of Preachers. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Making of Preachers. That's pretty good. Yeah, yes, great. Any other questions? Yes? Uh, you mentioned his time as the evangelic doctor that's one of his famous yeah. times. When you mentioned his sort of run-ins with the chastity. Yeah. Okay, I was wondering whether that title relates to that sort of aspect of it. I didn't quite catch yeah. how, how that played out in his life. I think so. So, I, I, so the question is, his, um, his title as angelic doctor... And, um, and, and whether that's related to his, his famous chastity. Um, and I was trying to dig into this, and I couldn't actually find out where he was called Angelic Doctor for the first time. But in his biography by William of Tocco, um, when he's recounting this, he really emphasizes the word angelic, angelic, angelic. It's all over the place. So I can't help thinking that it, it must have something to do, uh, to do with that. Um, so this, in this early biography, he's referred to as a really angelic guy. So it wouldn't be surprising that he'd be called Angelic Doctor. I don't even know if in his own life he was called the Angelic Doctor. As far as I know, he wasn't. Um, and I, it might have something to do with the Dominican Franciscan thing as well, because sometimes you hear Bonaventure referred to as the Seraphic Doctor. And this idea of angels as more intellectual and seraphs as more, more um, to do with love. And the Franciscan tradition, which emphasizes more love, and the Dominican tradition, which emphasizes understanding or intellect. So it could be something to do with that as well. But I, I haven't actually managed to, dig, to, to find the foundations of that title. Do other people know where, when he was first called Angelic Doctor? It was the 16th century. Really? Okay, okay, great. Great, but you can see the foundations for it there in much earlier texts where his, his angelic character is really emphasized. That's interesting that it was the 16th century. Great. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the, the, the difference between the older style preaching and the newer style preaching. The older style preaching was generally, I mean, this is the way it's characterized by friars. They say the older style preaching was line by line commentary. Um, and that's the kind of the monastic style of preaching, which is just very attentive to the text and very patient going through it. And this newer style preaching, which is influenced by Aristotle's rhetoric, um, and just a concern for how to, how to grab people's attention, how to, how to preach something that is memorable. Memorable both for, both for the preacher who's going around and needs to have many sermons in his head, and so he needs to have lists and mnemonics and rhymes and so on to keep these sermons in his head, and for the congregation. They need to be able to remember the points. So they will use all kinds of bells and whistles, all kinds of jingles to, to grab people's attention. They'll tell really vivid, horrifying, gruesome appalling stories to grab people's attention and to, and to keep, them, keep them engaged. So if you're interested in that, you can look up, uh, there's lots of different texts on the, um, the Ars, um, Ars Predicationis, I think it is, or the, the Ars Predicandi, uh, which is a genre of, of work in the 13th century where they go into preaching techniques and how a preacher should be trained and, and so on. The best one I know is by Humbert of Romans, and you can find that PDF online totally legal, um, totally legal, I need to emphasize that, it's totally legal. Uh, so it is um, the, a treatise on preaching, I think it's called. 
and his wonderful stuff there. He's a very important fifth master of the order, and he really sums up a lot of what Dominicans, um, how they preached, how they viewed preaching, how they viewed that office and that, that task. And Dominican preaching today, I don't know if it's, if it's I mean, I, look, I read some, sometimes I, I use really strange examples in my preaching, and I felt guilty about it for a long time because I thought I should be, you know, a bit stuffier and a bit, you know, classier or whatever. I shouldn't be telling stories about Pokemon in my sermons. But then I read these er this early Dominican preaching, and I'm like, they would have loved Pokemon. Like, you know, they, so I, I think, um, I think, yeah, yeah. Any preaching that's, that's vivid and that grabs people today, I think is very much in that, that tradition of, of the Sermon Modernus. That was its, that was its concern. Yeah, yes? I wanted to ask, when did um, Thomas's work permeate from um, Dominic in order to wider church and become sort of mainstream? Because mm. I remember from reading some history books that at his time, he wasn't well received, and also oh. in 1277, when there was by the bishop a list of theses that were condemned, yep. especially targeting Averroes, also yep. his theses about fact that the body wasn't once, so it was condemned. Yes. So when did it become sort of mainstream from, from being a condemned politician? When did it become mainstream? I mean, could we even say 19th century? Um, in a certain sense, you could say that. Um, that he kind of took on the status that he has in Catholic theology today with Eterni Patris of, of, you could say that, of Leo the Thirteenth. So it's worth reading, worth reading that text. And even if you look at the Council of Trent and so on, and there's these stories that the Summa Theologiae was up there on the altar alongside the Bible. I, I, I don't think it's actually true, but maybe I'm wrong. But you'll see that councils are so careful not to adopt the language or the position of the Thomistic school versus the Scotistic school and so on. And in medieval universities, in, during the Reformation period, for example, you'll have, um, just before the Reformation, let's say, you'll have universities with a professor of theology in Via Tome and a professor in Via Alberti and a professor in Via Scoti. So you'll have all these schools represented even within the one faculty, and they will teach theology according to this tradition. So there's a real diversity of, of um, ways of doing Catholic theology in the late medieval period. So it's not that Thomas was kind of seen as the only way. And very early on, I mean, I think, I think that one of the first people to condemn Thomas was an English Dominican. Um, yeah, I mean, so we were all one province at that stage, so I mean, we, we, shared, that, we shared the blame for that. It was an English Dominican Kilwardby, wasn't it? the Archbishop of Canterbury, so the Dominicans were not... I mentioned that there was that um, anxious section of the Dominican order that was concerned that we were taking in too much philosophy and that we were losing our focus on, on scripture, that we were becoming semi-pagans by, by reading so much Aristotle and so on. Um, and, and so some people regarded Thomas as going too much in that direction. Um, and there were people at the time who were going too much in that direction. The, the, the Averroists at the at the, in the Faculty of Arts in Paris, and he became associated with them, even though he was far more careful than they were. Um, so I hope that's helpful, that actually, it, it's not that everybody, all the Catholics in the Middle Ages were, were good Thomists. Yeah, not at all. If only Luther had studied St. Thomas more, we mightn't have had a Reformation. I'm just saying that. Yes? Um, what do you think St. Thomas uh, yeah, it's a great question. Why did St. Thomas leave the Benedictine monks and join the, the Dominican friars? Um, it's, it's hard to know that um, for sure. But when you just see everything else about him in his later life, um, just everything about him fits so much the Dominican mission of communicating the truth that God has revealed to us. Um, so I just think he, he, he saw something in the Dominican movement that, that, that resonated with his, with his character and with his passions and with his love and, 
and so on. Um, but I don't think he, he doesn't give us an insight into that. But what you can do is, is read what he says in the Summa Theologiae about the active and the contemplative life, and you get a sense there. He's really describing the Dominican order um, when he's right. He doesn't name the Dominican order, but you can see his vision of the Dominican life as um, contemplating and handing on to others the fruits of our contemplation. So that's his, his vision there. And you can, in the, in the smaller works where he's defending the mendicant friars, you can see that he defends the, the right of religious to teach. A religious order can be founded for any charitable purpose, he thinks. And teaching is charitable. Teaching is a way to love somebody. It's not just a career path. It's a way to love people and to serve the church. And so it's proper for religious to teach. And so I think we can see again a, an idea of his own vocation, his own sense of his vocation there. Better finish up. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.